Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello, I'm Richard Scott and welcome to the Podcast Hour. Each week I listen to hours of top audio storytelling from around the world and share the best of it with you. Coming up today, 20 minutes a day, five days a week. The Daily from the New York Times delivers the news to your ears. Then Black Sheep's back with more controversial characters from New Zealand history. Are they preserved hits? Yep, those are preserved hits. Fortunately, with Fee and Jane as an interview show with plenty of laughs. So, look, I've over-researched Judy for a half an hour interview. This, all my post-it notes suggest that you may be in a hostage situation, not being able to leave for about six hours. And The Dream explores the shadowy world of pyramid schemes and multi-level marketing. If you put a bunch of money in and you could talk other people into joining you, that everybody could make a lot of money and it was all cash and it was all fast and it was all fun and very optimistic and exciting. And next time you hear something good, then do let me know. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. Since setting up its audio unit in 2016, the New York Times has been using podcasts as a way of attracting a younger audience and to reinforce its reputation for good journalism. Audio lets its reporters showcase their expertise and their personalities in a very different way than simply having their name on the byline of a written article. So a few weeks back, we featured the series Caliphate, which gives listeners an insight into some of the challenges of reporting on Islamic State. Meanwhile, the New York Times daily news show called The Daily has proved a major hit. It's currently sitting at number two in the US podcast charts with five million monthly listeners and annual advertising revenue reported to be worth more than 10 million US dollars. And other media organisations are trying to emulate its success. Just this week, The Guardian, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and NZME, the publisher of the New Zealand Herald, have all launched their own daily news podcasts. Each episode of The Daily comes in at a digestible 20-odd minutes, and it's ready to listen to early each weekday in the US in time for the morning commute. Host Michael Barbaro interviews some of the Times' best journalists about the big news stories of the day, with a team of producers editing their chats and embellishing them with music and audio clips. Here's a story about climate change with Michael Barbaro speaking to journalist Nathaniel Rich about a missed opportunity to tackle global warming, the US's refusal to enter into an international treaty to control CO2 emissions nearly 30 years ago. Nathaniel, what went wrong here? How do you understand the Bush administration's opposition to participating in something that the entire scientific community, as well as the vast majority of the rest of the world, agree is an existential threat 
to all of us that has to be addressed by all of us? Well, there's a simple political explanation, which is that the chief of staff, John Sununu, won this political fight within the White House. But I think you can also ask, well, why was the level of support, the, the political and public support for solving the problem not strong enough to overcome one man. Uh, the, the will of, yeah, of, of one man who wasn't even the president? And I think that leads you into some larger questions about our ability to grapple meaningfully with a problem of such enormous stakes and a problem whose ramifications wouldn't be felt for decades or even generations. We talk about the effects of climate change. We're talking about civilizational death. Hmm. And I don't think we like looking at that in the face. And so we do whatever we can not to. Our responsibility is to main the quality, maintain the quality of our approach, our commitment to sound science, and an open mind to policy options. By 1990, Bush's entire economic council comes out against climate policy. At the same time... ExxonMobil has long been criticized for allegedly hiding what it knew about climate change. Just today, a pair of researchers say that Exxon's own documents prove that is true. The oil and gas industry mobilizes on the issue and develops a strategy and a campaign of funding disinformation propaganda. To assess ExxonMobil's public statements, it cast doubt on whether climate change was real, it discounted human impacts, and they suggested there was nothing practical to do about it anyway. Paying off scientists and politicians and ultimately the entire Republican Party to embrace this notion of uncertainty in the science. You know, uh, Are you convinced uh, that climate change is man-made? Well, I, uh, look, I, I don't know that that is a resolved issue in science today. And ultimately to deny the existence of climate change altogether. We keep hearing that 2014 has been the warmest year on record. I asked the chair, you know what this is? It's a snowball, and that's just from outside here. So it's very, very cold out, very unseasonal. So here, Mr. President, catch this. I don't buy that, Joe. What I do you mean you don't, don't buy it? I just don't buy, the fact, I don't buy the fact that it's a crisis. So Obama's talking about all of this with the global warming and that, and a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry, okay? As a result of industry's efforts, the politics around the issue become sharply divided. For those who believe this, it would have to be dealt with on a worldwide basis. So let's take a look at that. Even if you believe that that is a serious problem that needs to be addressed, one country doing it is going to have no impact. Why has it taken so long, Senator? Special for... interest. It's a special interest. It's the utility companies and uh, the petroleum companies and the other special interests. They're the ones that, that have blocked uh, progress in the, in the Congress of the United States and in the administration. At the same time, the seas continue to rise and... Natural disasters continue to occur at increasing frequency. There are reports from New Orleans of uh, people trapped in buildings that have come down around them. They what have happened? Made... <laughs> they have just split in half. Your house? 
Oh, split in half. Hurricane Sandy threatening a massive stretch of the U.S. from Virginia to New England all the way to the Great Lakes. So this is the highest the water has ever gotten here uh, in New York City. The monumental flooding and humanitarian disaster continues to unfold after Harvey with some... The island of Barbuda was once a Caribbean paradise. Hurricane Irma has reduced it to rubble. All 14 Caribbean community countries together produce less than 0.1% of global emissions. We are the least of the polluters, but the largest of the casualties. Now to Maria. This is the one I am most frightened about. Damn it, this is not a good news story. This is a people are dying story. And temperatures keep getting warmer. More than 50 million Americans are under excessive heat warnings, and it's not going to end anytime soon. At least 22,000 people have been treated in hospital for heat stroke. At least 10 large fires are burning across the state. The ranch fire has devoured 351,000 acres, making it the largest wildfire in state history. Excessive heat is also a threat thousands of miles away in Europe. In Lisbon, Portugal, mercury peaked at 111 degrees. The highest temperature ever measured in Britain was recorded at Heathrow Airport this afternoon. It reached 37.9 degrees Celsius, or more than 100 Fahrenheit. And in Frankfurt, Germany, the thermometer reached 97. Japan is fighting back against a heat wave that is striking many parts of the country. Famine threatens Somalia for the second time this decade. Riot Omen had a temperature over the last 24 hours. It never dropped below 108.7 degrees. If this verifies, it would set the record for the hottest minimum temperature across the entire world. So that happened this morning when they were A climate change story from The Daily, from The New York Times, featuring Nathaniel Rich, and uh, he was interviewed by Michael Barbaro. Claire Tennisketter is one of ten producers working on the show, and she told me how The Daily started and how it comes together each day. In 2016, The New York Times decided to start their own podcast unit. They hired a few people who had worked in public radio, and they started piloting some narrative podcasts. And then, at the same time... Trump was elected. And there was kind of a shift in mindset amongst the team that rather than doing long-form narrative storytelling, we needed to also do a daily news show, that there was such a hunger after Trump was elected for daily news consumption from podcast listeners. So then The Daily ended up being a what we call narrative news show, that it comes out every day and it, it looks at the news of the day, but it does it in a, in a narrative way rather than just reading you the headlines and having a host who knows everything and is filling you in on the news. We take the listener behind the news and sit down with our New York Times reporters and go through the story and build it throughout the chronology of what's happening in the news. So the correspondent, the journalist, almost takes centre stage, don't they, in a way that they don't really, I guess, in the print version of the New York Times. They're, they're kind of invisible and objective, aren't they, in that process? Exactly. That, that was the idea when we launched The Daily, that The Times has all these reporters. We have this built-in kind of untapped audio resource that we have experts on everything. We have experts around the world in Washington, D.C. and New York City. And right now they're just bylines on pages that people aren't, necessarily paying attention to when we want to bring them to life and and hear their voices and really have them walk us through the news of the day rather than just reading the print pieces. You mentioned the Trump election. Was that really a, a major stimulus? You know, the fact that people were 
exercised about the election and the result and about Trump coming to power. Was that really the major stimulus then for the daily setting up? I was working at a public radio station at the time, but the story that's been told to me, I I came on a year ago, but when it did start, it was Michael Barbaro, who was the host of The Daily, started hosting a a political podcast called The Runoff, and that started to kind of garner attention and build a little bit of an audience, and we realized that we could put something out every single day, that that there would be an audience for it, and that if we were going to launch daily news in a podcast form... Now is the time, right after Trump was elected, that now there was definitely an appetite for it. It's a great irony, isn't it? For all of Trump's criticism of the media and of journalists, he's he's actually been pretty good for business, hasn't he? He has. It, it, I say to myself sometimes that I wonder if I would have this job if Trump hadn't been elected because maybe the team wouldn't have grown so much. And like I said, I came on about six months into the Daily and I'm not sure if I would have this job if... Trump wasn't our president. And and each one of the episodes is roughly around 20 minutes, isn't it, uh, of the daily? How did did you come up with that duration as being desirable? So the 20-minute ideal podcast length is something that's... I'm not sure where the research comes from, but just this idea that the the average commute time, that we, we looked at longer podcasts and when listenership really starts to drop off, and it's usually between the 15 and 25 minute mark. So we thought 20 minutes was both a digestible amount that people can get through it in their morning commutes, and also it's it's something that we can make in a day. Because if we were going to make a highly produced 60 minute episode every single day, that might be uh, biting off a little more than our team of producers could could chew. So. 20 minutes was ideal, we think, for for both listeners and our production staff. Because as well as the central interview with the journalist or the correspondent with Michael Barbaro, which, of course, is pre-recorded and presumably has to be edited together, you will often drop in news cuts and and little audio clips as you go, which kind of tends, I guess, to make it a little more engaging and interactive. Exactly. So we we typically... I can walk you through a day. So we typically uh, go to the the New York Times, all all the head editors from all the different desks of of the New York Times. We meet every morning and we have one representative from the daily team that goes to that meeting. We figure out what stories are coming out that day, what we think will be driving the news of the day. And then we meet as a team of producers and editors and pick a story to focus on the daily for the next morning. And then we go out and plan the story We start looking for archival clips, clips of the day, clips in other news sources. Um, We're watching C-SPAN here, the government news channel, looking, watching Trump talk, watching whatever newsmakers talk. And then we go ahead and record the interview with our reporter. Typically, we record for between 60 and 90 minutes for an episode that ends up being 20 minutes. So we do a lot of editing. We do a lot of... Uh, we call it building when we're adding all, all the archival sound to to really make a piece sing. And does the reporter do that after they filed their print story? So is it is it done while all the details and everything is fresh in the mind, or do you give them a chance to kind of decompress and do it the following day? <laughs> it totally depends. So sometimes the print piece is already out, and then we record with the reporter afterwards. There are other times when we're just kind of begging reporters to to give us 30 minutes of time while they're on deadline and, and trying to file their story. It, it depends on how how big of a story it is. If the story is, is just breaking, we we might quickly record something. It, it really depends. There are stories, too, where we 
work with the reporter from the ground up and we'll send a producer in the field somewhere. And we're helping them shape the story and sometimes that actually will change the print narrative where there are other times when they're completely finished and then we jump in and, and make it into a radio piece. And, and so it, it can be a challenge sometimes because when you write a, a print story as a reporter, you're usually telling the entire story in the first two paragraphs, like all the key details, and then the rest of the piece is breaking it down, getting all the details, different reactions. Whereas when we convert it to audio, we kind of have, we want to start wherever the clock starts. We're always thinking of the chronology and each each beat we want to hit and and telling a story more like you would tell a story to a friend at a bar rather than getting all the important details out in in the first three minutes of the podcast. I'm trying to think of the conversations you must have with journalists, you know, when they're on deadline and saying, oh, look, can you just spare half a, half an hour to have a chat? It would be, there would probably be some quite difficult conversations. You get the feeling most of the journalists, they quite enjoy the opportunity to spread their wings a bit and do, do something a little bit different. Definitely. I think now the journalists really appreciate being able to come on the daily and they like there is good feedback when they're on the daily i think when the daily was first starting out it was harder to ask reporters to to take big chunks out of their time especially working in a newspaper working in in media there's always an effort to have journalists do as much as they can you know do some videos do extra interviews and then to come in and say we're making this podcast you're not necessarily going to get anything out of it. We just need all your time. So give us 60 minutes and talk to us. At first, that was hard. But then as the podcast started to take off, now reporters come to us and they're really eager to experiment, to be on the podcast, to use their audio. How far in advance do you plan stories? I mean, have you got an idea of what's going to be on next week or is it very much done kind of day to day and breaking news comes in and then you cover that? And and how does that work, the planning kind of aspect? It's, it's a mix. So there are some stories that we know are coming a couple weeks ahead and we can embed with the reporters more and, and really build them out. And there are others that we're turning around in 12 hours, 24 hours. So, for example, today I'm working on a story that we just started at 10 a.m. and it's got to be finished by 5 a.m. tomorrow morning. It's just a really quick turnaround news story. Whereas this this climate story we started in early August, and then it came out on August 31st. So I had a few weeks to actually work with the reporter, figure out what exactly we wanted to be in the piece, to find all this archival audio from the 1980s and, and, and build it and give it the time that it needed. Claire Tennisgetter, who's a producer for The Daily at The New York Times. Black Sheep's back for a new season, with William Ray telling more stories about colourful and controversial characters from New Zealand history. In the next few weeks, there's going to be a rogues gallery of Japanese spies, con artists and an alleged pirate with a great name, Bully Hayes. This is summer part one and a warning, the podcast does contain some graphic content that might not be suitable for younger listeners. So this story, like all good stories in 2018, starts on Twitter. Last year I put out a tweet asking people if they had any good ideas for black sheep characters to look into and someone sent back a tweet with a name I hadn't heard before. Horatio Gordon Robley. So I typed it into Google and then this photo popped up. 
I think it's the most disturbing image I've ever come across while working on the show, and I wanted to know what other people in the office thought about it. Test, test, test. I'm in the prod studio. Jamie here. How are we looking? Cool. All right. So, Jamie, I'm about to show you a photo. I need you to look at this photo and then give me your reaction to it. So I'll put it down on the table here. Jesus Christ. If you want to see this photo, feel free to Google it. I'm not going to post it anywhere myself because many people find photos of human remains offensive. I will describe it for you, though, because this photo is kind of the whole reason we're telling this story. Um, are they preserved heads? Yep, those are preserved heads. More than 30 preserved human heads. Māori heads? Yep. Lined up on a wall? Lined up on a wall. Horatio Robley is sitting in front of this wall. He's wearing a fancy suit, gold fob watch on a chain, giant waxed moustache, classic Victorian gentleman look. Really hard to just see a white guy sitting there with all these Māori heads on a wall behind him. In one hand, Robley's holding a Māori club, a mere. You know, like a taonga for Māori, and he's holding it and he's got all these heads and some of them are just sitting on the seat or the thing that he's sitting on, like next with Kumu, it's really affronting. These preserved heads, the mokomokai, to give the Māori word, are pretty hard to look at. Some are well preserved, you can still see their facial tattoos, the face is still recognisable, hair's dressed, there's feathers in the hair. Others are more skull-like, lips are drawn back from the teeth, their hair's fallen out. I mean, it's horrific. Could you imagine, could you imagine confronting that, you know, in, in, as, a, as a normal human being? What might be most disturbing is a couple of these heads look like they probably belong to children. One looks like it could be a baby's head. I, I can't imagine how anybody could collect the heads of human beings as artwork or otherwise. It's just, it's, it's inconceivable. You'll find this image all over the internet, usually on those slightly clickbaity websites full of weird or gruesome photos. But those websites usually don't explain how Horatio Robley collected these heads, whose heads they were, or maybe most importantly, why he collected them. Often it's just left to your imagination. Something's not right there, is he? Like, um, it's a screw loose or a... Yeah. It's pretty confronting, isn't it? It's very confronting. (laughs) Fairly often you'll see people suggesting Robley collected these heads in New Zealand while he was an officer in the British Army fighting against Māori and Tauranga in the 1860s. Some have even suggested he decapitated these people himself. It would be a simple matter for Robley to sever the desired heads with his sabre and pay some Māori expert in the field, friendly to Europeans, to preserve them. That's from a newspaper feature written on Horatio Robley in the 1980s. To put it mildly, he's a man with a grim reputation. When you were younger, he was uh, described as a sort of a macabre predator of, of culture. But there's a twist in the story. Over time, as we've got to know him more and understand his motivation better, uh, we see now that I think he was, um, really became a bit of a friend of the Māori. This is Hami Pirapi. He's a senior member of the Mokomokai repatriation team at Te Papa Museum, which works to bring preserved Māori heads back from overseas to Aotearoa, New Zealand. 
And yeah, you heard him right. He says this guy, Horatio Robley, was a friend to Māori. Horatio Robley's a complicated guy. He's a soldier who took part in the most famous battle of New Zealand history, a man who had a child with the daughter of a sworn enemy, an artist whose paintings helped end a war, and an author whose book saved a treasured Māori art form from the brink of annihilation. And yet all most people will know about him as he's some weird old dude with a big moustache and a fancy suit who collected Māori heads. That image, more than any other, that's been the, the image people have of him. And I think what we see generally is people's projections of their own sense of what was going on onto the image. This is Tim Walker. He's a former senior curator at Te Papa who wrote his thesis on Horatio Robley. It's going to take us a while to get through that life story, so let's start at the beginning. Robley's born in Madeira, a set of small islands just off the coast of Portugal. It's 1840, just a few months after the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi in New Zealand. There were British parents on both sides. His mother was part of a port company, you know, like Madeira Port. Um, and his father was a retired um, captain from the British Indian Army. So a pretty typical upper-class British family. And when Robley's still pretty young, the family relocate to Britain, where he and his two sisters are homeschooled by their mother. Who was a well-known and published botanical artist in Madeira. She taught them art. Um, they had a, a, a private tutor, and Robley was taught by his father um, around shooting and boating. Both Robley's father and grandfather had served as officers in the West Indies, and he continues the trend. By age 18, he's a promising young officer with the 68th Durham Light Infantry, sailing for the British colony of Burma, these days also known as Myanmar. And yeah, went out to Burma. Um, Burma was, it wasn't in a state of active warfare, it was like they were an occupying force. But this is the first place where we start to see there's something unusual about Horatio Robley something which doesn't quite fit the mould of a stereotypical young Victorian military officer. Whereas most of his colleagues were outside of military duties, the parade and so forth, they were playing cricket and having organising horse races and chasing tigers and things. Robley spent a great deal of his time with the Buddhist monks in the local monastery, effectively bartering for um, the monks to sit for him to allow a portrait to be taken. Horatio Robley, just like his mother, loved art. He was extremely talented at sketching and painting watercolours. I'm going to refer a lot to his artwork later on, and if you want to see it, there's a gallery up on our website. Rest assured, there's no human heads there. Anyway, to convince these Burmese monks to sit for portraits, Robley has to offer up something in return. And he was bartering by um, actually submitting himself to the marks of, of their, their tattooists. Over the next few years, Horatio Robley's arms and chest are completely covered in ink by these monks. You might think that's pretty weird for the time period, but there was actually a bit of a fashion craze for tattooing in Victorian high society. What is unusual is how this tattooing and Robley's painting builds genuine friendships. Quite a strong bond develops between him and the indigenous people he leaves with a, a Burmese signature. Um, he leaves with multiple tattoos down his arms and he leaves with a great deal of affection um, for, you know, on the part of those the, the Burmese monks. After six relatively peaceful years, the 68th Regiment's preparing to return to Britain. 
but at the last minute, the plan changes. While Robley's regiment was chilling out in Burma, war had broken out in New Zealand. British forces marched down the Great South Road from Auckland, invading the homeland of Waikato Māori. If you want to hear more about that war, then go back and take a listen to our episode about Thomas Russell. The super short version is that the governor of New Zealand, George Grey, wanted to crush the Māori king movement, and a lot of rich, powerful people in Auckland wanted to get hold of Māori land. Thousands of British soldiers sail for New Zealand, and one of them is Lieutenant Horatio Robley. He didn't know anything about New Zealand. They were fundamentally sent on here from Burma with no real kind of warning. Um, he gets to New Zealand um, in January 1864. He's the ensign carrier. He's a lieutenant by this stage. He's an ensign bearer for the regiment. Leads the regiment up Queen Street to Albert Barracks. Robley's unit must have been quite a sight as they marched up Queen Street. Aside from all the usual parade gear, the Durham Light Infantry have a mascot, a fully grown Burmese black bear. As soon as he's, um, they've settled into the um, tents, Robley goes into a bookshop in Shortland Street and buys two books by um, Judge Manning um, and also a Māori dictionary. Judge Manning's books were a sort of autobiography of his life as an early European settler living alongside Māori in Northland and becoming deeply embedded in Māori culture. The fact Robley bought this particular book when he arrived in New Zealand is very interesting. I think it shows that sense of intent, a sense that this is what he's going to engage in while he's here. And he wants to learn more about the about Indigenous Māori. people, yeah. Some of Headhunter, the story of Horatio Robley from Black Sheep, produced and presented by William Ray for RNZ. Episode two and the rest of the Horatio Robley story will be out next week and you can find the whole episode online now at rnz.co.nz. New ones will be released each week for the next six weeks and you can listen to it on Jesse Mulligan's afternoon show, 2pm on Mondays, or you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're new to Black Sheep, I asked William to recommend some of his favourite episodes and the podcasts he really likes listening to and you can find all the details of that now at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. Fee Glover and Jane Garvey are BBC presenters who apparently met up hosting an event together a few years back. They made people laugh. And fortunately, with Fee and Jane was born. Now nearly 70 episodes in, the weekly show's full of unscripted chat and longer interviews with guests who come mainly from the world of broadcasting and entertainment. And they have some fun along the way with the fact that production isn't always all that slick and big budget. The chats often seem to get recorded in the BBC staff canteen with all sorts of stuff going on around them. And some of their wry, self-deprecating reflections on life, perhaps about the weather, parenting, films, hipster cultural food, will make you laugh out loud. I did a phone-in once on Five Live about something to do with childhood. Yeah. And someone phoned in. But you know, you know, sometimes you'd have two callers on the line, which was always great if they and bounced they off each other. other. Yeah. 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 And someone phoned in and said, oh, it's just such a ridiculous phone and loads of us don't have kids. Why are you always banging on about kids? And this other woman on the end of the phone said... Were you a child once? <laughs> the guy 
I just had no response at all. It's the ultimate. It's the, the reason I can't stand people who make a fuss about other people's kids crying in public because everyone has been that yeah. mewling brat. We all have. Just because you currently are not in control of one or not responsible for one, how dare you cast aspersions on someone else who is wrestling with the object? Sorry, child. Where was the most embarrassing or difficult place that either of your two beautiful girls had a complete paddy? I think they're still talking... In fact, I know, because when I went back the year after it happened, it was an incident that was actually remembered by a well-known shoe shop in (laughs) in part of West London when my then three-year-old tantrumy child went off on one because they didn't have her size in bright pink Wellington boot. Just never seen anything like it in your life. Shoes were being thrown off racks. <laughs> I was wrestling with her. She then slapped me across the face. Oh. Not once, not twice, but five times. <laughs> and it took, I have to tell you, Fiona, it took every ounce of self-control which I developed over many years with my challenging choice of marriage partners and indeed broadcasting partners to develop I just did not respond Have you lumped me in to that? You, Peter Allen, what's his name? They're all I don't know, what did I do wrong? I must have been, I don't know what I was in another life but I know I'm knackered so it must have, I must have had a good time um, No, that was, that was easily my work and when I went back the following year they said, oh I said, yeah, no, she's fine now she's, she's through the worst it was one of those occasions where my and I was with my eldest child as well and she poor soul very biddable at that age slightly less so now uh, was putting the shoes back she was really trying to help listen darling can I just say parenting it's not for the faint hearted is it and it's I tell you it's a long haul yeah can I tell you about we had a domestic uh, disaster first thing Sunday morning (laughs) you look really bored (laughs) Like I say, listeners, stay with us because there'll be a nice little burst of short evening and good then in it's a Judy Murray. But let's all rally round and get through the domestic anecdote. No, it's just that Zeb Sones, you know, in his recommendation of coconut oil. It wasn't Zeb. It was. No, it was Quiffo Magnifico. It was Mabine. Oh, he rec- right. recommended looking longingly at foxes. Oh, that's right, yes. But presumably he'd smother himself in coconut oil before anyway, he looked. Anyway, that's, what, uh, let, let's just not worry. That's I'd, not I'd slathered some yes. on my face. Yes. Went into my youngest daughter's room. She was away at a friend's house. I thought, I must change that child's sheets. So I went in and I got rid of the duvet, threw it on the floor. Boiling hot morning. It was about half past ten by this stage. I'm covered in coconut oil, not, not wearing a huge amount, just my double-fronted kimono. Lifted up the fitted sheet and she'd forgotten to tell me that her feather-filled mattress topper had exploded at which point I became swathed in a feathery hell which would have been just about bearable but it stuck to you because of the coconut oil when I looked in the mirror and I can't tell you how angry I was but there was nobody else in the house apart from the cat and she just couldn't give a damn in fact if anything she was mildly excited by hysteria that's I look like a cat fantasy come true. <laughs> it almost certainly is. I looked at the mirror. I just looked like I looked like a really small angry yeti. Just. Do you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking of ridiculous. when Orville explodes. Well, yes, it was. It was. It was a Keith Harris and Orville moment. I was so. It just for some reason it, I, I actually found it, I didn't find it funny. I found it really annoying, just a bit depressing. Oh, I, I wish you'd photographed no, that, I couldn't, Jane. because it was too humiliating. 
It was too humiliating. It felt like a whole new domestic low. It yeah. really, really did. <sighs> it's difficult, isn't it? Sometimes life just takes these turns and you just think, oh, all day I was out with the Tover attachment nozzle thing trying to I still haven't got rid of all the feathers they I keep seeing them in the air in the house yeah and and, and what about yourself did you have to go and shower I down had two separate showers <laughs> could imagine answering oh. the front door to someone can't but they think <laughs> do, oh, you, do you know how much fun they would think that you'd been having if you answered the door like kinky Just stuff about hilarious pillow fights yes you that's... never get this side of the story angry middle-aged woman in bad mattress topper incident yes yeah. there's no it's not a foreplay no, no it really wasn't and here's a clip later on from that same episode as fee and jane go to meet the tennis coach judy murray he's already making a calamitous <laughs> she's making a calamitous show of herself i'm not <laughs> ringing the wrong knob Letting the BBC down. I'm, oh. Have you know, I'm no stranger to the hotel corridor. <laughs> Hi, Judy. Did you just ring the bell there? Yes. We did, we did. We're just Hi. inept. Judy, Hi, I'm feed lover. Very Hi. nice to meet nice you. Nice to meet you too. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Look at that view. It's, it's an amazing view, isn't it? Is isn't incredible. it? Judy, do you want to go in the comfortable, comfortable sure. chair? Jane will perch on the swivel. <laughs> okay, I don't so, look, I've over-researched Judy for a half-an-hour interview. This, all my post-it notes suggest that you may be in a hostage situation and not be able to leave for about six hours. As well as being a coach, Judy Murray is also the mother of the pro-tennis-playing brothers, Jamie and Andy Murray. In that very first year in 2005 that Andy played in Wimbledon for the first time and made the third round against the odds, nobody expected it. So nobody prepares you for what might happen, like paparazzi, like doorstepping, like endless cameras in your face and you have no idea what to say and just (laughs) very, very tough situation. And I think that the media from that moment, because they are predominantly men, um, male editors, male journalists, male cameramen. I was that unusual dynamic of a mother of sons in a global sport, right. and I, and they painted this picture of me as I was a pushy, over-competitive well, mum. You're really interested in that aspect of mm. it, aren't you? So obviously, as a tennis fan, I've seen you, you know, so many times watching your boys play. And what really comes through in the book is just your devotion, your care. And the the right that you have to support your kids in exactly the way that you want to. And I wonder how frustrating it must have been through all of those years to read that negativity all the time. I mean, you must have had lots and lots of nights. You only refer to a couple in the book and you say that you don't really cry. But there must have been so many times when you were just going, what can I do to, to change this? To just people like me who are watching. I think it's you're not you're not asking for the cameras to be on you. You're not asking for somebody to put your picture in the paper. And it it it's just I think the nature of tennis being twenty seconds between points, ninety seconds at the end change, and the nature of Wimbledon having no ad breaks means that the cameras and the commentators have some. They need That's somewhere yeah. to go. I hadn't realised that either. Yes. And yeah. if um, if my kids had played any other sport. Nobody would have knew, uh, no. known that I'd existed, yeah. which would have been lovely. Mm. But, you know, you suddenly realise after that very first match that he won and, and, you know, you're picking up a paper the next day and you see a picture of yourself, you know, pumping your fist and baring your teeth and looking a bit like some kind of demented fan. Um, and, and that's really the way that it, it went. And I used to read everything because I wanted to know what everybody was saying. I found it really upsetting, but 
I could always apply common sense to it that I've never met these people, they don't know me, the people who are important are the friends and family and those who know you. But And I, and I never wanted the boys to know how much it upset me. But, at, you know, at the same time, it, it went on for many, many years. And I think the worst one was when, was when Boris Becker said, after Andy had lost in the Australian Open final for the fourth, fourth Grand Slam final that he'd lost, which is devastating for any athlete mm. to get that close and not win. And as the family, you have to pick up the pieces and put everything back together. And we came back from Australia to discover that the front page of the Daily Express was saying, ditch your mum, Andy, or you'll never win a slam. Judy Murray on Fortunately with Fee and Jane from BBC Radio 4. Thanks to Rianne Roberts for her help in bringing that to you. The Dream delves into the shady, complex world of pyramid schemes and multi-level marketing. Basically ways of selling stuff which also encourage you to recruit new people as participants. So if you can get your friends or family members to join up, you can earn a commission on whatever they sell. The Dream's host, Jane Marie, used to work on the This American Life show before setting up her own podcast production studio in Los Angeles. And she's got a personal interest in this topic. Growing up in rural Michigan, she knows people who are part of these sales schemes, who we meet later in the series. When we first started making this show, we were super pumped, jazzed. But we had to keep the topic under wraps for as long as possible. The subjects of our investigation are highly litigious, for one thing, And we had to get close, inside how they work, without them freaking out and closing ranks. That was touchy enough. But then there's this other thing. Half of my family and most of my friends from my hometown are involved, directly, intimately. And we're going to bring you into their world. It's sketchy and crazy-making and almost unbelievable. Anyway, it was frustrating, this not being able to talk about it thing. Like I said, I was super pumped, and I talk a lot. One night, I let it slip to one of my best friends that we'd gotten a new gig. The exchange went like this. All I can say is that it's kind of about pyramid schemes. And he goes, oh, you should talk to my mom. What? Yeah, my mom ran one of those when I was a kid out of our house. A literal pyramid scheme. Picture this loft. There is a 16-foot high, 22-foot wide window overlooking the World Trade Center. Ladies and gentlemen, my friend's mom, Nan. So it's got white pickled floors, a 16-foot ceiling, and 3,500 square feet. It is jammed. Hundreds of people showed up. You can't even walk. There are so many people. In order to not be suffocated by the crowd, I I climbed up the uh, spiral staircase going to the second floor um, just to observe. And I remember just kind of sitting on that staircase overlooking this crowd of people as they moved around the room making alliances, you know, creating future uh, groups. Back in the 80s, Nan was working in advertising and raising her three kids in Manhattan. I was only just, you know, newly unmarried and just kind of coming back into the world. 
it was kind of an exciting time for me that, you know, life is new. I'm feeling very empowered and on a personal basis filled with an idea that, that I was smart and adventurous and I could do anything I wanted to do and that life was just an adventure. The timing of Nan's rebirth, if you will, couldn't have been better. See, at that exact moment, a cultural phenomenon was taking hold in new agey circles all over the country. It was called the human potential movement. Think of it as sort of a precursor to the secret. You know, just visualize abundance and happiness and voila, you're rich and skinny or whatever. In that time in New York City, there was a lot of human potential movement groups kind of it was all about energy. You know, energy out is energy in. And, and you get what you give and all of that, you know, power of positive whatever. In the midst of this movement sits an untethered man riding this new wave of endless opportunity. And along comes this exciting concept where if you, if you put a bunch of money in and you could talk other people into joining you, that everybody could make a lot of money and it was all cash and it was all fast and it was all fun and very optimistic and exciting. This new thing was presented as a game called the airplane game. As Nan remembers it, anyone who was even tangentially related to the whole human potential movement was a buzz about the airplane game. Parties introducing it to newcomers were being held all over Lower Manhattan. The way she describes it, they looked kind of like literary salons, with people giving inspiring lectures at their bohemian flats in the East Village and a bunch of aging hippies sitting around cross-legged, wrapped with attention. There were stories about these people who had come from California who took up residence in some lecture hall in the East Village, and these people were giving lectures on the new way of, you know, making money while stepping aside from the uh, establishment. It took a minute, but being in that world, eventually Nan agreed to attend one of these meetups and to learn more about this exciting opportunity. The first time I remember asking somebody, well, wait a second, how does this thing work? I was trying to understand it. He said, well, there's a pilot and there's two co-pilots and there are um, passengers and you pay to fly. These were obviously not literal airplanes. Picture this. People would set up chairs in the shape of a triangle, or pyramid, with one chair at the front. That's the pilot seat. Behind that person, there were two chairs for co-pilots, four crew behind them, and eight passengers in the last row. Those eight passengers were the new recruits, who put in $1,500 apiece. As they recruited more people, they moved up the ranks, until eventually they became a pilot themselves and took the pot. Then they moved on to another airplane. The chairs weren't absolutely necessary. Sometimes these planes were just represented by charts, but the principle was the same. So it's this revolving thing of you pay and then you wait and then everything moves very quickly um, and you are, before you know it, like we're talking about four days, you are, you are a pilot and people are paying you. I can't remember some of the timing of this, but I did say yes to having a recruitment party at my loft in Tribeca. 
somebody planned it, called me and said, okay, if we come to your place. And it was at that event that I started to think, ooh, this is like, this is getting out of hand. It was extraordinary and giddy making. I mean, it was really uh, intoxicating and fun. Until somebody leaned up to me and said, I think there are some FBI men in the room. I went, oh, far out. Is it really? Some of the dream presented by Jane Marie for Little Everywhere. And that's about all from us for now, as well as the dream you've been listening to The Daily, Black Sheep, and fortunately with Fee and Jane. And if you've found something great to listen to, then do let me know. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email, and I'll share as many of your recommendations as I can on future shows. From me, Richard Scott, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'll be back next week. See you. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.